After midnight We're gonna let it all hang out After midnight We're gonna chill, love and shine We're gonna call talk and suspicion Get the next vision the great J.J. Kale, and on the phone we have Christine Lakeland Kale and uh, friend and longtime manager Mike Kappas, and talk about all the stuff that's coming out on Because Music. So there's going to be vinyl and uh, just all the all the stuff of, of John's that people can can discover or rediscover. Yeah, I think I'll let you take that one, Mike. Well, it's already out. Um, the record came out April 26th on CD and, and streaming, and it's also on vinyl. It's on two discs of vinyl. But simultaneous to that, because music we had worked with on previous records, and so there's five other albums of Kales that were released on vinyl at the same time. Um, many of those are imports because we weren't working with Because Music in America until this record, but they are available now, all the last five records of Kales as well on vinyl now. And is there a website, or how can people just find find that through traditional uh, manner? Well, you can go to jjkill.com, okay, and we've got everything there. Uh, make it real easy, and then there's the standard Amazons and so on and so forth. But we've got all the information at jjkill.com, which includes videos. There's three videos out already on this record. And there's also, they just added a 10th episode asking different artists from around the world about Kale's influence on their music. So there's 10 different episodes of people talking about J.J. Kale, how much he meant to them, how much he influenced them, and then generally that individual uh, playing one of Kale's songs as an example as well. You could tell the it was put together with, with uh, TLC. Uh, talk about the track um, Leaving in the Morning. Just a, just a beautiful, beautiful song. They can have all my tomorrows. Talk about uh, how that was discovered and, and what you know about that song. Now, Leaving in the Morning, I believe, is off an earlier album. Uh-huh. Oh, it's, I'm not sure which yeah, album. Not, not on an album, but it may have been an extra. But uh, I don't think we had it on an album previously. But, but oh, it had been around okay. a good while, like the rest of them had been around. And, uh, you know, that uh, we just collected the best, what we felt were the best that were all kale and were all ready to be released. Like I said, he, he had produced them all to a standard level of that he would produce something to uh, for release, and they were all at that level. And there was no overdubbing done, uh, you know, no extra guests on it, no remixing, nothing. This is the way he left it, and it's, it, a lot of people are saying it's right up there with the best of any of his other albums. And it's done tremendously well, internationally especially. It entered number three on the sales charts in Switzerland, number nine in Germany, a lot of other. He was always much bigger in Europe, but he's this is actually breaking records for him. It's one of the best-selling records, or charting records at least, ever for him. Why do you suppose that is? <laughs> well, for one thing, there's, there's been some space. Yeah, you know, in yeah. between, and so there's anticipation of something new and a lot of talk about it. And I think nowadays, you know, when we had Facebook and everything when he was still around, but it was uh, not the impact that it's gotten in the last 10 years. 
And the record company did a fantastic job, too, really covering all angles. And they flew Christine over to Europe to go to some of the major capitals and, and do events on the week leading up to the release. And so lots of great visibility. But also, you know, Facebook, for instance, we built in the meantime, we wanted to keep Kiel's profile current. And so we kept uh, new items coming in for the years, all these years since he passed away. And so there was a an active, still an active fan base, you know, that was eager to hear something new. You talk about visibility. Um, I was I was prompting everybody with the 1990 interview we did out in Boston. But at that point in his career, <laughs> he was very much into talking about being a recluse. I'm looking at some of my notes. He said he told me then, spent two years living in a 24-foot trailer near Anaheim, California. He said he didn't own a phone. He didn't do much. Um, if you don't own a phone in America, you don't do too much business. Then he said, uh, I started riding a bike. I'd get groceries on my bike, and that's hard to do in L.A. I like some rap. I'm a guitar player, so I like heavy metal. I love it. Eddie Van Halen. You can never stop trying to learn. Overall, I tried to slow it down and enjoy it a little bit. I bought me a house, and now I got into mowing the lawn every Saturday. I'm not working. <laughs> But exactly, I will say John always spoke the truth, so that's the truth. Yeah. So I mean, so talk, go ahead. Yeah, you talk about getting gigs and everything. So I started working with him in the time when he was still in the trailer, and it was a pretty unique situation. In the very beginning, he had another manager, and that uh, that guy. Uh, you know, they separated soon after I started working with him, but and I was just his agent, but I would have to send a mailgram to General Delivery at the local post office that his name, Sheriff General Delivery, he didn't even have a P.O. box, and I'd have to hope that he would ride his bike over to the post office and see the thing and give me a call while the gig was still available, you know, before they <laughs> moved on to somebody else. And it got, uh, at one time, there was a an urgent, urgent situation. I had to get a hold of Kale, and he was, I didn't even know where the place was. I met him uh, at a Disneyland hotel restaurant one time when we had to meet, and he'd ridden his bike over there, and he had sworn everybody to secrecy. Well, I don't know how many people knew, but Christine did where he lived, and I had an extremely urgent situation I had to get to him on, and uh, she gave up where he lived, and I sent a mailgram to this trailer park to J.J. Kale, and nobody in the trailer park knew who this J.J. Kale guy was. They knew about Charles <laughs> Johnson, who had this trailer over there with a Porsche next to it, but nobody knew, and Kale just happened to be walking through the trailer park and saw the mailgram on uh, on a picnic table and picked it up. Otherwise, we never would have connected, But because uh, nobody knew this J.J. Kale, even though he was living among them all the time. He he really liked to keep a low profile, believe me. Um, we only got a few minutes. Go ahead, Christine. What were you going to say? I was just going to interject. That was in the days when we all still had a modicum of privacy, and privacy was very important to John, and he always said, once you lose privacy, you don't get it back. So I think that's why it was paramount at that time, and of course now there pretty much isn't any privacy for anything for anybody, but this was a different time, so... He wasn't totally in the wrong. <laughs> well, this is wonderful that all this stuff is out there. So um, thank you so much for joining us. I'm inviting you guys to, if you want to hang around, listen to Lurie Bell. I know, Mike, we've got some things you want to talk about with Lurie. So um, thank you so much uh, to bring J.J. Kale's music back out again. And we're going to take a break and have some live music in the studio with Mr. Lurie Bell. Oh, thank Thanks you. Great. Mm. Come on. 
to Nocturnal Journal, and anytime you can hear some new J.J. Kale music, it's, it's, it's a good day. So on the phone, we're going to talk about this, <clears throat> and on the phone, we have Christine. Are you there? Yes, I am. How are you Christine doing, Lakeland Dave? K- doing okay. Christine Lakeland-Kale and uh, longtime manager Mike Kappas. Are you there, Mike? I'm here. Hi, Dave. Thanks, uh, thanks for hanging out. Uh, we ran a little long with that first segment. Um, so talk about these new songs, um, how you found them. Um, I, I know a little bit about John's, you know, he had this whole library when he would do a record, he would always have like some extra tracks. So talk about, talk about what you found. Well, first, I could say something first and seek to... Go ahead, Christine. Mike. Yeah. Over the years, uh, Kale would send me initially cassettes and uh, later on CDs of, of records or of, of tracks. And, and so I had a good collection as well. Um, and I told him at one point, you've got two great CDs here, you know. And from that point, he used some of those. But um, I think when he went to make a record, he would focus on new for the most part and then maybe throw in something that seemed to fit that it was left over from previously. But it's not like he chose from a stack to make a record usually a new record was mainly new but uh and then christine had i had gotten what john sent me and then christine had what was in the house and what was on tapes and christine could pick up on that i guess yeah go ahead christine yeah sorry go ahead no go ahead follow up what mike said i was just going to say there was uh when you start discovering what all is here what was he working on and then trying to second guess did he like this one well enough to consider that he might put it out someday? What if he was thinking of making a record? Trying to put yourself in in his shoes and second guess. Hope you make good choices, you know. <laughs> uh, John, but one thing that was important about all that, I think, is that uh, all of the songs on the record were brought up to his typical level of production before he released something. It wasn't raw, and there was no overdubbing. There was no remixing. Everything's exactly as he left it. And the way he left these songs was really at his standard level of production before releasing. Yeah, yeah. So all good stuff. All well produced. Really well produced. John passed away in July 2013 at age 74. Um, why, Why is the time right now for this? What was it like to look back? Like six years. Well, I'm not a person to live in the past or dwell in the past, but in in downsizing, you have to go through everything and make sure that you're not going to get rid of something that you shouldn't. And I realized, well, I have to go through all of John's bits and pieces and papers because um, he w- was always working in his workshop at home on his own equipment. And that was when I started finding things that some I had heard, some I knew about. And then I started finding a surprise here and there, which made me think, wow, I think his fans ought to hear this, you know. And it had been, uh, I believe Mike had included me in, it's been 10 years since his last record. 
And uh, it didn't seem like we'd been, you know, asking for people's attention too much or wearing out our welcome. So it was a good time to say, hey, remember this guy? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's pretty, I mean, it's timeless is really, really what it what it is. It's, um, well, I know I'm biased, yeah. so I agree with you. <laughs> Talk about the My Baby, Blue, My Baby Blues track uh, cut at Bradley's Barn Studio in 77. Well, that particular song was the first song John and I cut in the studio after we met. Um, He cut his version, a demo, in 1980, and uh, it became an unused outtake and was sort of forgotten about. When I came across uh, the cut that's on this album, I realized he'd gone back and reworked it and revisited it and added to it and sang it again. And I thought, oh, he must have liked it enough to fool with it. And uh, and Mike was the uh, catalyst for me, including it, because it is the only song not written by Kale. Yeah, I'd, I'd had all this collection of, of songs from John, and I can't remember. There's just a few things I didn't have. I'm not sure if My Baby Blues was one of them, but as we were trying to decide which songs might be good for the record, I brought that one up, and, and John had sent me all this stuff, and he wouldn't. there was no detail on it to speak of, just to hear the, hear the songs. So I didn't realize it was one that Kale had not written himself. So Christine was a little hesitant at first because the concept was to be you know, all about Kale and not about anything written by anybody else. But uh, I've, you know, repeated a few times that I really like the record. She can choose as to whether or not she wanted to use it, but I, I like the track. And, and then, you know, Christine had the story that went with it of their first time recording together and decided to go with it. At the beginning, we played uh, the title track. Uh, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is Eric Clapton on that track? He I is think not he on is. anything on the record Oh, wait. No, Sorry? no, no. He, they opened up with Roll On. Is that from the... Yeah, right. Oh, Roll On. Record? Oh, yeah. He got disconnected for a minute. I thought you were talking about oh. the title track of this, this oh, record. Yeah. Uh-oh. He's not on the Sorry. new record. But the question for listeners um, who may be new to this is talk about his um, you know, affiliation with, with Clapton. I know Clapton covered his songs, but how did, how did that begin? How did, they, how did they first hook up? Actually, I, I double-checked, uh, and it was, you know, there's different stories about how Eric first heard the record, but Eric says that Delaney Bramlett, who was producing his first, Eric's first uh, solo record, had given him the song. And, uh, you know, he liked the song, he included it. I think Bobby Keys, who was on the record, called John once and said that Eric had cut his record. And John thought, yeah, well, sure, right. You know, or, or that, you know, it might be an outtake and not tell the listeners. The tell the listeners what song you're talking about. After midnight. Yeah, right. okay. uh, sorry. And John was driving along one time and listening to a station that was, you know, mainly played bigger hits. And all of a sudden he heard After Midnight and he thought, wow, I'm going to go out and buy me a Chevrolet. <laughs> so not a Rolls Royce, not a Cadillac, but a Chevrolet. Because John was pretty <laughs> down to earth. Yeah. Um, and talk about his, his his guitar. I mean, he had he had such a, a and we got Lurie Bell coming on after you, and we're going to talk about that. Lurie Bell's a JJ Kale fan. Like I said, his, yeah. his music never goes away. But his the finesse and the style of his playing. Uh, talk about talk about John, just a great great guitar player, which is I'm sure how he connected with Eric. Well, I will say that from a musician standpoint, I think the uh, the thing that's unique to John that is to um, a lot of artists is when they're so identifiable, his rhythm and his phrasing 
just was something that even if a hundred of us listened to him, we can't uh, execute what he did. We can't be him. And I think that's why musicians were such fans first, because you understand what it is to have something special. And uh, that's what you get every time you put on kale stuff when people recognize it. I think that's uh, the specialness about it. And you mentioned uh, Eric, and I think there's an interesting story there about them. They really didn't hang out or even be in touch with each other that much until the last few years. Um, But during Eric's first Crossroads event, he asked for Kale to be on it, and Kale definitely agreed. Kale felt he owed so much to Eric for the visibility that he gave to Kale's songwriting. But at any rate, at Crossroads, uh, Eric talked to Kale and said, I I come into the studio and I bring a couple J.J. Kale records and I tell my producers, this is the sound I want. And he said they could never get it. So it seems like the only way I'm going to get your sound is if you produce me. And so that was the the seed of the Escondido, Rhodes Escondido record that the two of them did together. And that record started as J.J. Kale producing Eric Clapton, which he was very uncertain about. He talked to me about it and he was he was thinking, what if nobody likes this? You know, what if I take him in a different direction nobody likes? He was a little worried about that. But he ended up agreeing to do it. And uh, they went through the process. And in the middle of the process, they realized it was more of a co-production, not really Kale guiding everything. But Kale played some guitar and he did some singing on it. And the record was entirely finished, as was in the intent of Kale producing Eric. And then Eric called Kale up and said, what if you added a few more guitar parts here and here and sang a little bit more here and here, and we can call it a duet record. And that's that's what happened. And Eric was so generous that he put J.J. Kale and Eric Clapton with Kale's name first on the album. Um, and, you know, very healthy share of the album. Uh, but it, And Eric was asked about that later on. And somebody said, did you plan that from the start? And he said, no, no, well, maybe. And in fact, on that deal, and it only occurred to me later when I was dealing with Eric's manager about terms for uh, Kale producing the record, he said, what about we just wait and see what happens? And I wouldn't do that with any other artist, but, you know, Eric and his management were just extremely professional and generous, and so we we did that. And and Kale, at the same time, would have done it for free because he had so much respect for Eric. So maybe that was the plan from the beginning, because they didn't want to make a contract in the front, but they made one in the back when we saw that it was a a duet record. Uh, Very interesting. I'm going to ask you guys, i I got a few more questions, so can you hang on a little bit after the news? I want to hit on a couple more songs off the record, so... um, don't Great. go away. I'm, sure. I'm a huge fan. I also want to talk about uh, taking Peter Wolf to go see John in 1990. That was quite a show in Boston. So don't go away as we uh, <laughs> pay tribute to uh, J.J. Kale on WGN.